Welcome to Interviews with Musicians. Today's podcast is proudly sponsored by Encoda. Encoda is an app that lets you practice, play, and perform vast amounts of sheet music. They are a subscription service that has over 30 million pages of digital sheet music all in one app. We here at Interviews with Musicians have personally used Encoda and were astonished by its user-friendly design, crystal clear scores, and the sheer amount of repertoire available within the app. Encoda is an essential app for any aspiring professional musician. We highly recommend that you download Encoda from your app store today to start your seven-day free trial. That's Encoda, spelled N-K-O-D-A. Once again, that's spelled N-K-O-D-A. Today, we will be interviewing Charles Wesley Evans. Charles Wesley Evans has been applauded by the New York Times as an elegant, mellifluous, and expressive baritone, and a warm, strong baritone by the Washington Post. His solo work has offered opportunities across the United States with the Cleveland Orchestra, New York Philharmonic, Austin Symphony, the Masterworks Chorus and Orchestra in Carnegie Hall, and many more. He is a passionate supporter and performer of professional choral practices and is a proud member of the Carmel Bach Festival Chorale, Grammy-nominated Seraphic Fire, the Choir of Trinity Wall Street, and the Grammy Award-winning ensemble Conspirare. His singing has been broadcast on New York Public Radio, South Florida Public Radio, California Public Radio, and Classical NPR. He has served on the voice faculties of the University of South Florida, the University of Tampa, and is currently artist faculty for the Professional Choral Institute at the Aspen Music Festival and director of choral and vocal studies at Choate Rosemary Hall. He holds a Bachelor of Arts in Music from Bruton Parker College in Mount Vernon, Georgia, with further study at the Boston Conservatory of Music and Westminster Choir College of Ryder University in Princeton, New Jersey. Thank you for being here with us today. Charles Wesley Evans. So, some general information. Where are you from? Um, Macon, Georgia. And how did you get into music? Um, it was kind of like a limb. When I, when I, uh, my mother's an organist. My brother is a music teacher. My two sisters are sopranos. So we kind of come to earth singing. So the second that I could actually make sense of pitch, I was singing. Moving on to undergraduate studies. Where did you attend your undergraduate studies? I spent a year at Bruton Parker College in, um, I'm sorry, Brevard College was my first school in Brevard, North Carolina. And I moved from there in my second year to Bruton Parker College in Macon, Georgia. I'm getting all this wrong. Uh, in Mount Vernon, Georgia. Um, and uh, I found a really, really phenomenal teacher there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I spent my, my undergraduate career there. And what undergraduate degrees do you hold? I just hold a Bachelor of Arts in Music and a minor in Psychology. Did you do any young artist programs while in undergraduate studies? I did not. Did you do any professional choral institutions while in undergraduate studies? No, they did not exist. (laughs) (laughs) So what are some things besides young artist programs and PCIs that you did to build your resume as an undergraduate student? I took, um, well, it a lot of the success of building a resume in an undergraduate, especially in a small rural area, was um, was the teacher finding opportunities that I didn't know existed. So I did my first Messiah when I was a senior in high school. Um, a number of competitions um, around the state of Georgia, so that other generally you meet new colleagues that are also seniors that you'll know for the rest of your life, you're competing against them. And also other teachers in the state are are, are seeing you 
and suggesting you for certain master classes, people who will come to the area that you might be able to do graduate, potential graduate study with from, you know, who have reputations as really fine teachers. Just, so the teacher put me on the forefront of what was happening in a voice in the state, um, and that kind of formulated a little young artist program uh, for me as a soloist. And what are some of the most useful ways for undergraduates to spend their time to prepare them for the next step, whatever that may be? Um, for, well, first of all, and I'm a big I'm a big advocate for finding a really really good teacher, and hopefully they're able to to um, guide their student with regard to um, certainly rock solid um, tech, uh, not tech, but uh, um, uh, what do we call it? Uh, Oh, good technique. Technique, yes, not tech, like a tech. <laughs> technique, yes, but building that rock-solid foundation is just key. Freshman, mm -hmm. sophomore year, um, one of the most devastating things for me to see is when a student is being rushed through rep that can wait until their junior, senior year, until that foundation is solid. So if you find the proper teacher, they're able to not only... Um, solidify or really get you, get you grounded in, in where you the, the best of your ability at your age with regard to found, to foundation but also rep um, them having some knowledge of what rep is the proper solo repertoire that you should be working on at the time that you can send in for auditions at your junior senior year for young artist programs for these new things like these new PCI things that are popping up around the world, um, them having the knowledge to share with you and start working that music in such a way that by the time you start creating your MP3s uh, and, and uh, information packets to send to these places, this music has been worked really, really well. Um, I think that's one of the, the that's top of the list when you're just in undergraduate. Um, uh, so that that would be um, most beneficial to a young singer. How important is GPA in undergraduate studies? I think that's always important, but I will say um, some of the best singers and artists are horrible students. And I'm gonna I'm, I'm not saying I'm one of the best singer artists in the world, but I was not a good student. Um, but hand me a piece of music, and I would make music for you. Um, unabashedly, it was just something that was inside of me, but then when it came down to academics, it was rough. So one thing that I did not know as an undergraduate was that there were so many resources on campus for tutoring. If, there was, if, if you needed to be motivated just to sit down and study, because sometimes all we want to do is work on our art songs or work on our arias, and it takes someone holding us accountable and our professors and teachers can't always be there, and there are tutorial programs at all these colleges and universities that I did not know about um, to take advantage of. So I would say absolutely you want to do the best possible um, um, work that you can in all of your studies, but you also need to recognize when you need someone else to hold you accountable and you need to spend a little bit more time with those services that are in your tuition, frankly. Um, and I had no clue. Um, so, yes, I do believe that it is um, important to do the best you possibly can, and when um, you need assistance or help to not be prideful and overlook the fact that there are resources on campus that will 
help you excel. I mean, where there could be a B, there could be an A. Where there have been Ds, there could be Cs. Um, but it's important to recognize that those resources really do really do exist on campus, and they are there for you. So if you're able to go, um, likely it's likely that the GPA will be boosted, and yes, it does help. At the end of the day, if you're on your way into graduate school, you've done good study and you're singing really well and your GPA is a 2.75 and another singer who's a valuable singer but they don't have it, the, the teachers can hear whether or not they have the longevity that another the 2.75 student has. That, that, that student who has the, the higher, the C average, they're likely to take a chance on. So what I would say is do your best. Do your best and if your best is a 2.75, um, and you've been lining up the voice and working on, on the proper rep, chances are you're going to do very well going to graduate study. But bottom line, utilize the resources that are at the school. So moving on to applying to graduate school, does attending a more acclaimed yet competitive school provide more opportunities in the long run as opposed to a smaller school with more individual opportunities? Um, you know, that is a, an inter interesting question. My perspective, like point, bottom line, no. You go to the school for the teacher. Um, those teachers who are in the circuit, when I say the circuit, even if they're not a part of the, the uh, of NATS, NATS Association of Teachers of Singing, they're constantly sending out information on new artists, uh, young artist programs. They're constantly sending out emails with regard to the master classes that their students need to, need to be at. So they're getting the same information from these huge universities at their smaller institutions where you can get pers more personal uh, um, uh, attention, but also you may find at that small school a better pedagogue. That is what you need. You need to, to always you know, reach out to your colleagues and talk to them about <clears throat> teachers. I don't think the name, yes, we have CCM. Yes, we have the Curtis Institute of Music and, and um, Boston Conservatory, which uh, New England Conservatory, um, Oberlin, and all these other schools where the name just kind of turns heads. But there's not always a true pedagogue there teaching the voice and how to teach that voice to work for three decades. And I think that's most important. So if you find a phenomenal teacher at, for instance, Shenandoah University, which is one of the few universities that has the kind of vocal pedagog pedagogical program that they have, which is the really deep, hardcore study of, of the voice, um, if that's where you found your teacher, if, if you do the work, um, you will be noticed. Your teacher's going to put you on the path with all these kids from CCM, with all the kids from all the other, Rice University, um, and you're going to be running right alongside, right alongside them. So how do you find a voice teacher that you would like to study with? You need to utilize the resources that, um, that you have, which, for instance, now, we're familiar with you. You're our friends now, if, and, and we've taken voice all over the country. I've taught voice. You get to know in the, in the circuit um, who people are sending their students to. For instance, uh, if I've taught undergraduates and graduates, but mostly undergraduates. 
I always have some idea of who I want my students to look into. And a lot of it's based on the conversations from other teachers and singers that I respect as singers. And I, 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 I know um, their practices, I know their approach to, um, to, to, to their performance and to their vocal health. So I utilize my resources so that I can utilize that towards sending my students to a good teacher that I know cares a lot more about their vocal health than putting them on a stage, winning a competition, and making a name for me. You know, so I have to utilize my, my network. Is it more beneficial to attend graduate school or gain experience right out of undergraduate studies? That varies. I, ha I have um, a number of um, colleagues who ended up, and I was one of them, my career started with this area in uh, New York City. And New York City happens to have a number of professional choral ensembles right in the area. And I, um, I really, I met the right people at the right time. It was around the time that I didn't even know that having this type of career existed, and this was like 2007. Um, so the choir that I sang with Trinity Church Wall Street in New York City was kind of a, um, um, not a nucleus, um, but um, a choir full of all of the bosses of the New York City choral area. And from that choir, I... Um, but from that choir, um, because of the work that I was doing there, showing up prepared, um, my solo work was in good shape, some of those people who were in my choir, who were my friends, were also artistic directors of other ensembles around the city. Um, so they, from my work there, I didn't have to give them an audition, ta audition tape. I'd basically been auditioning for them not knowing. So they started just sending me contracts. And it just continued to spiral. Um, Seraphic Fire heard me on a webcast from Trinity Church Wall Street. We had a, a full concert series, and they were always national, internationally webcast. Um, I didn't know they were watching, but they liked what they heard 10 years ago, and, and I started receiving contracts from them. Um, so it was a lot of um, being in the right place at the right time, because this is still kind of when it was really kicking off and people were starting to support themselves this way. Um, so you always have to be mindful of, of who, you never know who's around you, so you always want to be at your, the top of your game as best you can. Um, and so a lot of my opportunities came from singing with other professionals who also had artistic um, uh, director positions. Should you pay for graduate school or should they pay you? Ideally, no. They should be paying you. Um, it is, and it's different for everyone. However, the, ideally, especially for the doctoral program, you should not ever have to pay. The master's degree can be kind of a toss-up. Um, you can get, if you're lucky enough to gain an assistantship where you are assisting um, the music department in the offices, or they're giving you students to teach, um, those are the most ideal, or, or teaching a course, those are the most ideal programs because those are the programs that give you, that give you scholarships and stipends. Um, if that doesn't happen, there are 
because it's so competitive, there's you should always have you know a second, a, a second go to. There should there should be a, a plan B. There are plenty of um, good teachers all over this country, and some of them right might be right in your back door in a state at a state school, and I master's programs at state schools, they they cost almost nothing. Um, there are so many schools with so many students attempting to get in. Um, it kind of goes back to that question you, you had with regard to do the names of the schools matter so much. Um, a school like Shenandoah University, which is a good school, um, but it's the secret's not totally out yet. You, you might find a great pedagogue there, and you might be more likely to get an assistantship there with a lot of work experience. And that means once you're out of the graduate program, you have almost two years of work experience. So when you apply for a position at a college, it, it doesn't show that you've just been in school and you haven't worked. They're giving you two years worth of experience for your resume that propels you ahead of someone else who's graduated from CCM or wherever, who's just been you know, singing you know, and not teaching. How important is it to have a master's degree? That is another question that's so individual. When I was in New York, um, well, personally, I, 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 I haven't finished mine. I'm almost finished with it. But it actually did not matter at all when it came to my singing career. Um, with, the, with conductors hearing you, if they like what they're hearing you, hearing from you, you can, uh, some guy from, you know, from Colorado Symphony uh, Orchestra could, could be sitting around listening when you've done a great performance and done good work and all of a sudden you start hearing from them. And they don't care if you have a master's degree, to be quite honest. With the most important thing about the master's degree is that it is just another thing in your, pool, in your toolbox uh, to have. Um, I'm sure Sarah and James and, you and Patrick and Scott, they, they can talk about being able to teach at the university college level, um, which is almost a definite requirement these days, um, in addition to carrying their solo career. So I do think it is important. I do not think that it is impossible to have a career doing what we do, or just being an opera singer, um, or just concertizing. Um, no, you absolutely don't have to have it. If you finish undergraduate, and you're not totally sure where you want to live, because there are certain pockets of the country where it's easier to get into the professional choral singing world, like New York City or in Boston. If you find yourself just unsure, I think if you are, if you, if if the work that you're doing as an undergraduate singer is going well, I think it's really smart to go on to another good teacher in a graduate program almost immediately. That's one of my biggest regrets is not going directly into my master's degree. So yeah, I think it's important, um, but I do not think that if you are able to get work and you're doing well. Um, that it's something that you absolutely have to have. But if you're looking way, 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 way down the road and you're like, I'm gonna wanna teach and not travel for the rest of my life, yes, absolutely. So how important is it to have a doctoral degree? Uh, again, with the teaching com component, colleges these days, um, because they're competing against each other, the more, doctoral, the, the more doctors they have on faculty, the more competitive they are. Now, mind you, 
just because someone has a doctorate does not mean they can teach. Doesn't even really mean they can sing. I have worked with them. They have had studios right next to mine. Um, I think if it's in you, you know, after that master's degree, you take a break, your singing is going well, um, and there's a program that suits your lifestyle for a DMA, um, I think you should absolutely take that opportunity. I think you should get the highest level degree you are comfortable with. But at the same time, if the career is going well, um, and you're feeling, okay, actually this is something that I can see myself doing and retiring in. You know, you, you'll sing 15 years probably in the professional choral world, and if you have something like arts admin that you've been doing also, and you know that our admin, our admin position um, is um, a solid position that you could retire with, you might, not, you might not find yourself needing a doctorate. But it depends a lot on your vision for your, for your life. If you see yourself teaching in a college, teaching voice, te doing coursework, running away every once in a while to do a symphony performance, doing a Brahms Requiem or something like that, um, the DMA is valuable. So moving on to graduate studies, where did you attend your graduate studies? Boston Conservatory for a year, and then I spent um, three years at Westminster Clark College. And what graduate degrees do you hold? None. <laughs> I'm, very cl I'm, I'm this close to finishing the, de the degree at Westminster, only 12, 12 uh, credit hours. I stopped because of a lot of... of um, family things that were happening at the time and it was so stressful. But at the exact same time this was happening, my, my career as a soloist and also a professional choral singer was really taking off. And I found myself just wanting to, to not juggle both. And I certainly enjoyed being in New York, making music and getting tons of solo work and building the resume that um, I just made the choice that I would be back one day uh, to take care of it. Did you do any young artist programs during graduate studies? No, no, I did. Um, I, I, I would count the professional work that I was doing for graduate school as, as, as young artist work, but it was, it was professional work, but it was work that most or all of my master's degree colleagues weren't doing. Um, you know, a number of them were running off to do um, opera young artist programs, but I was actually working, um, you know, at a time when most grad students weren't. Did you do any professional choral institutes during graduate studies? You know what, if they existed, I totally would have done it. <laughs> what are some things besides Young Artist Programs and PCIs that you did to build your resume as a graduate student? As a graduate student, um, I, there were things that I took, and I was lucky enough to be between Philadelphia and New York and Princeton, New Jersey, and, and it is a musical nucleus. I mean, um, of, of, of a number of different qualities. Um, but I took things that, um, you know, the, you have to humble yourself. You can't expect to start off at the top. So there are opportunities as a soloist that I took that were um, Messiah Sings, like the, where they have a ton of people come and they'll have like four soloists and they pay you $200, if anything at all. I would do those. Um, 
there were other opportunities um, around the area, and this was because of someone who heard me do one of these Messiah things. Um, I got one of the biggest professional things I did, and I don't even know if it exists anymore, but it was a Brahms Requiem with the Delaware Symphony Orchestra or Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, and a lot of that was because of the conductor who called me in to do the Messiah Sing, and um, the other conductor, I think, of the Delaware Philharmonic was there. Um, so that turned into an actual professional um, um, opportunity with a major orchestra. So what are some of the most useful ways for graduate students to spend their time to prepare them for the next step, whatever that may be? Okay. Um, it's, I can't say how important it is to, to reach out to those before you and, and find time with them and talk to them. Every path is different. It's not going to be the same for all of us. But there are some key things like knowing how to make a, a, a decent in, uh, uh, recording or artist packet, a publicity packet to send out. Discussing um, whether or not at the time you need a website. Um, looking, staying abreast of um, all of these different opportunities to visit master classes, to visit pedagogical master classes in particular. Um, there are programs, three or four of them around the country, where you can just go there for two or three weeks and study the instrument scientifically. It's so important that, that, that they stay on top of seeing those, those things which are listed in classical singer, singer uh, early music America, uh, even opera news. Um, having, no, having access to those publications, um, or even simply when you're in the music building, and I know you guys have seen this, we have things just posted all over the board. We get these posters from all these things that we're signed up for. Read them. A lot of them don't cost anything, and they're actually very good. And a lot of them are in Europe. You know, they're in other places. So I would, I would, I would utilize your elders, uh, people who have fought through this before. But I would also stay on top of things that aren't necessarily singing opportunities, but educational opportunities in the summer. How important is GPA in graduate studies? Very, very. They do not mess around with that. You cannot get below a B average in there. Uh, everything has to, you have to have a 3.0 or, or above or you're in danger of being uh, dismissed. So it, it is, uh, the course load itself isn't as heavy in graduate school each semester because they're giving you opportunities to teach, they're giving you opportunities to do administrative things, so they want to try and find that balance. Uh, and they also know that the study that you're going to be doing in graduate school is so, they want to give more time to go deeper. So that's why the number of credit hours also, the number of credit hours that you have aren't, um, um, they are, they're so few. It seems like few, but when you start writing all the papers and reading 70 pages a night in each course, it, it, does, it seems like 19 hours of work. Um, but your GPA is extremely important, and I think the way that they balance it, they try to make sure that you have the opportunity to do that without a huge battle. Um, um, it's a balance of being able to really absorb that information. Um, and if you're staying on top of it, you should manage you know, that, that B average. But it becomes a problem 
um, when it goes below that. So moving on to auditions, how do you get auditions? I, um, the last major audition I had was, was in 2007, and it was for the Trinity Choir. And almost everything else that I have done since then was because someone was, either, either a conductor I knew took me with them to do a work wherever that may be around the country, and other con uh, other conductors are speaking to that conductor, and that conductor is 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 um, suggesting you for work. Um, when I for that particular audition, um, it was very typical. You know, you, you sight read, you um, you sang a couple of contrasting pieces. Uh, it was Trinity Church in Princeton again, in in New York again, and most of what they did was early stuff. So it was a contrast of early, early pieces with the, with the artistic director and, a, and an accompanist that they provided. Do you need an agent? Um, most of us, um, in my experience, my close friends, they have lasted about 10 years without one. I don't have one. Um, as time goes on, your perspective on what it is you want changes sometimes as you get older. And I think that after about 10 years, even though you've been getting solo opportunities, you might find yourself wanting mostly solo opportunities. So oftentimes they will sing for agents and most times be picked up by an agent and they'll start doing mostly individual solo, solo work around the world. What pieces do you choose to prepare? It depends on, I, I, I always take stock and research, I research the conductor. If I am actually singing for a conductor, um, I read about them, I read about their, the, I look at their season on their, uh, uh, on their website. What are they mostly doing? Is it mostly early stuff? Is it mostly new music? Is it romantic? Um, you can learn a lot about that conductor and that group based on the research that you do. So based on that, if, if it's something that is suitable for my voice, um, if it's a bunch of verity, I likely won't go sing for this guy. Um, maybe in five years. Um, but I'll keep it simple. If it's Bach and Handel that they, they specialize in, I will find some of these, you know, sort of Jane Fausta, uh, Handel aria um, and um, any number of Bach arias from the B, uh, the B minor, the St. Matthew. There's a number of cantatas with absolutely beautiful arias in them. Um, and some of them are kind of standard. Um, and if you dare do, do one of those, you best do a good job of it. Um, so I'll generally choose some standards um, depending on what these people, this conductor specializes in. Because, uh, I mean, it just makes no sense if it's a handle opera, handle Haydn situation like they have up in Boston. Um, and to go in there and, and bring in like a Ned Roram piece, uh, it just, they, they won't think you did your research. They, they, they won't have as much respect for you. But if you sing beautifully enough, they'll, they'll figure it out. And how many pieces do you present? It depends on the person. I'm always ready for three. If I had three with contrasting styles, and that means if it's early, um, a, maybe a Bach and a Handel, it could be um, Scarlatti and Brevi, um, 
uh, a Vivaldi, um, all, all of these early composers. Um, I would look for something that had fioritura in it, a lot of coloratura, something that moves and dances, and then something that will allow sustenuto and, and show line. Um, and then at the bottom, generally it's just two things they want to hear. Um, I would sing maybe an English art song, you know, if, especially if the others were in German um, and Italian. I, I, most people want to hear some English as well, so I would, which would be maybe a newer, a newer English piece. What materials do you bring with you into the room, such as paperwork, resume, binder of music? At this point, um, I would have a binder of music just in case the, the accompanist that has been provided, if one has been provided and you don't bring your own, I would have an extra set for them. Um, I would have my set, but I likely wouldn't use it. And it always depends. If it's oratorio, they may not, they absolutely won't care. Sometimes you'll come out onto a big stage um, where, you know, where it might actually happen and sing for these people. And their expectation is, because that's the practice, that you would utilize your music. You absolutely don't have to. Um, but I would definitely have two sets of music. Um, the resume and all those other things you've already sent ahead. I would always have an extra pack in my in my folder, but chances are you no longer need to give that to them. They're gonna have it. They're gonna they're gonna start reading this the second they say your name and you walk out on stage. Um, so most importantly, two sets of music, one with really 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 clear copies for your pianist. You want to be very respectful to them, so you want to make sure what you give them is legible. What is the first thing you do when you walk into the room? I walk into the room like I own it. I walk into the room with the confidence. Um, I think that uh, the way you take the stage, the second they see you take the stage, they are sizing you up, you know? So even if that day you're not feeling great and you, there's a little bit of concern, you have, to, you have to think, I am the best baritone or soprano or mezzo-soprano in the world. Um, that means so much. The way that you take the stage um, and the way that you are dressed is extremely important. You want to wear a nice suit. Um, some people, I mean, if, if it's that formal of an audition where there are three people like the, the like American Idol sitting out there watching you, if it's an individual audition, um, um, generally, I mean, as long as you're clean, it's not that huge of a deal. They want to hear the voice, you know, and they want to hear... Uh, the re your sight reading and all that stuff, so, yeah. What is the audition process like when auditioning to be part of a professional choral ensemble? Generally, um, it's, 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 it's that, what I, what I call a press packet, a really, a really good uh, headshot um, that is relatively current, you know, within five years, a good likeness of yourself. Um, and then... Maybe on the back of that, and this can be done any number of ways, but on the back of that, list the works that you have done as a soloist. It lists the works that you have done as a professional choral artist. It lists the coaches that you have had. It lists the teachers that you have had. And you can either put um, education at the bottom or education at the top with your full name. Um, before you even arrive to audition for them, most of the time, again, you've already sent sound bites of your singing. 
that's generally how they make their decision in a lot of these groups based on those MP3s. You don't go to them um, unless you're lucky enough knowing that they're in your town. You reach out to them and say, can I do a coaching with you? And they say yes. That in itself is an audition. So though, uh, with, with professional choral ensembles, because everyone's so spread out, there's no requirement most of the time for you to fly there to sing for them. You know, so make sure that the things that you send in are really good quality and let other people listen to your things. You don't want to be the only ear listening to your singing, um, the balance of you and your collaborative pianist, the repertoire you chose. You want to run that by people that you respect. So moving on to work outside the music field, have you ever had to work a part-time or full-time job that does not involve music while on the track to becoming a professional musician? I didn't have to, but I was burned out um, after undergraduate from competing and all these things my, my teacher was, was involving me in, which were fantastic. Uh, like I said, it was like my young artist program um, that I went into social work uh, for maybe three years. So the first year I, didn't, I only did a few little solo things at Christmas. And the following year, I did audition for a, a local professional ensemble. Um, I was a mental health uh, counselor, and they would let me leave during um, what was kind of my dinner break, but it, I would stay an hour and a half longer. They would let me drive 15 minutes away to practice with this ensemble uh, and come back to work. Um, so that's when I started mixing it up, um, when I was doing mental health. and. Again, I didn't have to. I just knew at that point in my life I couldn't do music full-time because I needed, I needed a mental health break from it. But this was kind of the door opening again for, for, for what's happened now. So I did work in mental health. It's good to have another trade um, that you enjoy. Uh, if you, even if you continue to do this for 20 years, um, you need other outlets. So yes, I have done other work. So moving on to uh, professional singer, do you take private voice lessons as a professional musician? Um, it's funny. Um, it's easier to do that when you are in a program. Um, harder to do when you're going, when you're hopping on a plane to this thing and then hopping on a plane to that thing, but you can make a way. So I found, through my colleagues at Terrific Fire, I found a teacher, a really, really uh, fine teacher with a great reputation in Miami. So I would make time to see her when I could, when I was there. Um, same thing in, 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 uh, in any area of the country where I've lived. I found um, a coach, even if they're not, even if you, you're not feeling like you're having any issues, you know, technically, there could be vowel things that you're not hearing. So yes, there's, there, it is wise to have a coach that you can reach out to and definitely a teacher that you check in with. You don't have to see them once a week. You probably won't have time to do that. But there should be an ear, a pedagogue that you trust. And yes, I've done that and I still do now. And how do you find a teacher? <clears throat> Word of mouth. You have to, it, there are singers, for instance, one of the singers that st stood out to me most recently was two years ago when Clara Osowski started uh, with us at Seraphic Fire. And I'm always watching new singers, and, and sometimes, 
a lot of times you can tell a lot just by watching. So I watched her a lot in the first rehearsal, and within the first three days, I, I wanted to talk to her about who she had worked with. And, um, and because of her, I met this wonderful teacher in Iowa, Steven Swanson. And um, generally, it, it takes us watching and listening to other singers and, um, and also knowing where they came from. A lot of people will share their story. A lot of people will tell you a story at 27 or at 30 where they say, oh my gosh, I had struggled until 30. And then all of a sudden this light bulb went off and, and a conversation opens up about well, who helped you um, with that light bulb and a teacher's mentioned to you. Um, so a lot of it is word of mouth. What's an average cost for a professional voice teacher? Oh my God, it depends on the area of the country. So where you guys live, it might be 60. In New York City, it's like 150. Um, because a lot of these people are renting the space that they're in, or they think they're the best teacher on, on the planet. But on average in New York City, it would be about 120, between 120 and 154 an hour. Um, <laughs> and do you have to bring your own accompanist? Not always. It, that will depend on who it is, because some teachers are more skilled at listening and playing, or just being happy playing the bass line while they listen to the voice. That gives them the opportunity to, to, to truly listen. It's, if you're concertizing um, and thinking about recitals, uh, which is a good idea, you yourself, a singer themselves, will want to find a good collaborative pianist and schedule their lessons around that time that the pianist can be there with them because that continues to give you time to connect. And that gives the, if your teacher or coach don't know them already, it gives them the opportunity to get to know your collaborative pianist, but also get to know the two of you together. Um, it's very important that you have a close relationship if you're going to be doing song, arts, recitals, um, where you take your accompanist with you, it's really important that you work together alone, but also with your teacher as much as possible. And how important is solo classical training to choral singing? And how important is choral training to solo classical singing? I believe, um, I believe they're one and the same. I think that they utilize, much like musical theater, we utilize the same faculties with regard to a good foundation for each style. Um, I think that a lot of it has to do, um, I think learning to be a classical singer is learning to be any kind of singer. I think once you've learned that foundation, um, you can do nearly uh, any kind of singing in a healthy way. Um, so classical singing and the, and, and the way that we build the foundation from that style of teaching with the 24 Italian art songs or whatever it is that you, Schumann and, and Schubert, all those first year, second year things are, are, are the building blocks for you to be able to ease in and out of ensemble singing. Ensemble singing um, makes your ear even sharper with regard to language, um, with regard to how sound is traveling um, outside of your body. Most of the time, if there is a, um, a problem with regard to um, 
a section unifying sound, it has to do with a technical issue somebody in there is having. And they're not just having that technical, technical issue in there. They're having that technical issue all around the board. So it's self-discovery when you, when you find that you're having issues with uh, ensemble singing. Um, so I think they work, I think both of them together do mighty things um, with regard to your self-discovery as a singer. Um, and it also is a more exploration into vocal pedagogy, things you never thought that you would have to know. I, am, I feel very blessed to be able to sing opera if I feel like it, or art song rep, gospel, musical theater, and also stand in my section and sing as well. And it has a lot to do with the fact that I had really good teaching as, a, as an undergraduate student, but also, um, oh my gosh, I lost my train of thought. Um, I had a great undergraduate teacher. Oh yeah, but also just having an, the appreciation that I have for ensemble singing. Um, so I took the time to just explore if I felt uncomfortable years ago, well, what is it that I am doing wrong? Um, and, and I could feel, you know, the sensations when things got uncomfortable. So it just made, um, both of them together just made me more aware and a, and a better vocal, uh, pedagogue. Is it better to work for a multitude of different choirs or stay based with a full-time choir out of one location? Again, that's a question with regard to where you live. I have friends in Boston <clears throat> who are able to stay around Boston because there's so many different professional ensembles. So it's easier to stay close to home and get work from a number of different ensembles. So for the first question, yes, it is beneficial to have a number of ensembles on your roster because honestly, that's just more checks coming into you. Um, and a lot of times in pockets like Boston and pockets like New York, these artistic directors get to know each other and they know when they might be able to pull a singer from this group and that group, they, try, they start to coordinate. Um, I do think that is a benefit uh, to, to even if it's San Diego Bach uh, Collegium and Seraphic Fire and uh, Skylark, that's how you build your schedule. Um, as, a, as a, a concert artist. How much of an understanding do you need of other languages and how important is it? It's extremely important. Um, now, it's not likely that at, by the end of undergraduate we're, we're going to know Italian and know German and know French and those are the three major languages that we focus on. Um, however, it is important that you know how to speak it and say and actually be able to do the IPA or visually see these words and just be able to sing them. We sight read things in German. We sight read things in French. Um, uh, we, we luckily not Russian. We get a coach, get a coach in for that and start all the IPA stuff. But it's really important, in particularly with German and with French to be able to just at least be able to see a sentence and speak that sentence. You may not understand every word until you put your translations in, but it is important that you know how to actually speak the language uh, and have an understanding, an understanding of um, it uh, with regard to um, syllabic stress. 
Is it better to stay in the United States or go to Europe to sing slash study? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, what I have understood from friends of mine who are from the United Kingdom in particular um, is that you'll be paid much better in the United States for professional ensemble, ensemble singing. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, with regard to teaching, I think they have some some fine teachers, but that would be an exploration to take. If you have the opportunity to study there um, and you go for the teacher, no problem, no problem at all. With regard to work, um, I think it's kind of close, much more close-knit than even our country is, our ensembles are, so it's a little bit harder to get in. Um, and then on top of it, my understanding from those that are from the UK who live here now is with regard to payment, you're, you'll get paid more your value here for our, our groups. So moving on to health, how do you manage and prevent vocal fatigue while performing demanding amounts of music? Um, abiding by sensation. Um, it's the study that we do at the undergraduate level and master's level that builds um, stamina. Um, knowing what your limitations are, um, being able to lean on your colleagues. Your, I lean on bass, uh, um, bass, bass, James Bass and John Buffett, and I have for years. We know our instruments so much, so well, that we can talk about who's going to sing what, especially if it's a piece that uh, takes tremendous um, um, breath support, and there are just three of us. Um, so you have to be connected with your colleagues in your, in your section. Um, you can't ever stop exercising your instrument. You may find as you get older, because all these cartilages will start to settle, that it's easier to take off in the morning and just and, and, and sing, you know, a, a, an early church service with a, with a, if you've taken a church job or an early ensemble um, performance, which we've had to do a few times with the rapid fire as well. Um, the more you exercise the instrument in a healthy way, it's ready. You have to think of yourself like an athlete. These, these people who are off to the Olympics, they are training, you know, daily. Um, I would suggest just vocalizing 10 minutes a day, six, at least six days a week um, before your rehearsals so that all of these things are moving and working the way that they should. And you will find that they fall into place much easier after you're 30. What are some remedies for curing short-term altercations to the voice, such as sore throat, cold, etc.? Well, I would, my first um, go-to is rest. Sometimes we don't have that. Um, and I'm just going to be old school. Taking the uh, salt water as hot as you possibly can without hurting yourself. And gargling three, twice a day, morning and night. It will kill germs like nobody's business. Um, sometimes when you're traveling... Um, non-stop the body gets tired you're in this fuselage with fake air at 35,000 feet all the time just you know taking in all this recycled air you're drying up um, so it's, it's important that you 
if you're feeling not feeling well and it's a sore throat, I would use that as a remedy. I would never take something like chloroseptic, which is numbing, and sing. Um, I wouldn't take blood thinning um, uh, pain relievers and sing. Just uh, you could feel as if you're ready to sing because the pain reliever is working, but you shouldn't. Um, I would I would look into zinc. Zinc is very good and natural. Um, I apologize, there is another um, supplement that helps with inflammation of the entire body. So sometimes the cords are inflamed when, you, when you're having a hard time through the registers. They're just a little thick. They're inflamed. There is a, there is a, a supplement for that, and I apologize because the name escapes me. I've been trying to figure out that name for three days. <laughs> but, it, but I'll get back to you. But so, it works really well. It works really well. How important is it for a singer to exercise consistently? It's, it's important. It's, it, you want it, your body is your instrument, the entire thing. We're not violin players. We are not trombonists. They get to take their instrument and put it in a box and carry it next to them. They can have a terrible cold and be complete, have laryngitis and not be able to speak, but do this great concert in Carnegie Hall. Our instrument lives inside of us, so it's really important um, that you know your limitations with regard to um, what you can eat. Some t- tomatoes, sauces on, on pasta don't bother everyone, but it will give other people acid indigestion and they'll go to sleep and it will just fry their cords and they'll wake up in the morning and they'll have the hardest time getting, to, getting started. Um, you have to know the instrument. Your body is a temple. The better shape your body is in, the better shape your, vo- your voice will be. So that kind of leads us to the next question, which is how important is it for a singer to follow a specific diet and what foods and drinks should be avoided? Interesting question. Um, and this is, this is, you know, when I was a kid and I was, I was working as a little professional boy singer, they told us, you know, no milk, no fried foods right before concerts. Um, those were the two biggies. Um, but as I've gotten older... Uh, I, I've learned by, you know, being around so many professionals and seeing them all sometimes eat and drink the exact same thing, watching our bodies react to those things in different ways. So it's, it, it, it's going to be a bit of a, um, when you're starting out, it'll be a bit of exploration of exploring to know just how much of whatever this is I can have and feel okay in the morning. Um, you have to be mindful of just your your body. And if milk causes a lot of phlegm, you stay away from it. Um, if it doesn't, you're not one of those people that has to be bothered with it at all. If, if, um, if having two bourbons doesn't bother you the next day and doesn't affect your body in any way, you're, you're just one of those yeah, people. Yeah, so how does alcohol affect your singing short and long term? Uh, short term... It, it's dehydrating. It, it just If you don't drink enough water, it's, de- it's just dehydrating. An excessive amount, that's a new problem. If you're doing an excess, excessive amount every single day, you will find that you'll, you'll find yourself fatigued. If the body is fatigued, chances are uh, this will be fatigued. 
and it's not going to support this the way that, that, that you know it normally does. So I would say everything in moderation. I'm not one of those people who would say, you have to cut this out completely. What you have to do is learn what is okay for your chemical makeup. Um, so, you know, I would, I would go lower on the end of the alcohol, but I would drink double the water of what al- al- whatever alcohol I have. Stay hydrated. Just stay hydrated. How much does touring and traveling with high vocal demands affect you? It affects me more mentally than it does vocally. I rarely get vocally fatigued. Um, but being around people and being social constantly, you find yourself needing to purge. You just need that personal time uh, and quiet time. And the people around you who become your friends, who become your family, they begin to understand that your personality needs that and they don't take offense to it. Um, it, um, it can be grueling on the body, just coming out of one hotel, hopping on a bus or hopping in a rental car, pulling bags. Um, it, did, it has taken a toll um, uh, on me physically. Um, it's great when you show up and they take your bags and you just hop in, the, hop in, in your town car and just go. Uh, but that's not always the case. So it's affected me less vocally, but more physically and mentally. <laughs> yeah. Moving on to family and relationships, how has being a professional musician affected your relationships? It has not been good. It, 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 I have to be honest. Um, they, it, it, it's, you know, it is a blessing when two people do meet and that balance works really well when one's on the road a lot and the other one's home. Um, or if both of them are on the road. But that's just my individual story where I think that uh, being away, for instance, for a month in July um, for the past 13 years, except this year uh, in, at the Carmel Bach Festival, that just, it, it, was, it was on the heels of a season where I was already gone a ton. Um, so it didn't work for me then, um, but I have seen it work for many, many friends of mine who are, uh, you know, a, a, an engineer and a singer. Um, a trombonist and a singer, and they're both traveling. Um, it, 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 who, it, who it is that you're working with, that matters most. Um, so is it hard to balance a relationship with another professional singer? I would ideally never lo- like to do that. <laughs> because singers are, <clears throat> we can be a lot. Um, give me one second. Um, the, that can work, though. I, example, there are two tenors with the exact same Fach who are um, married and have a, a one absolutely wonderful relationship. Um, it's so individual. It's so, there, it, I don't think that two singers together is automatic demise. Um, it just, you have to be careful and, and understand what it is that you're getting into and you have to work very hard to make the time for one another. Would it be difficult to have a partner and specifically children as a professional musician? For me, yes. Personally, for me, yes, it would. Um, because I would, want, I would have a hard time being away too much for, if I 
if I, I need to foster that relationship with my children. But again, there are a number of, of professional singers who work that out. But you do have to at least have, in my opinion, one parent is practical in their home. You know, if you go away for a week every couple of months, not a big deal. Um, the schedule, the schedule that I have been keeping, absolutely not. I couldn't possibly do it. I would have to slow down. So moving on to business, what is the best way to market yourself as a musician? You want to be known as a good colleague. You want to be known as the colleague or the singer that shows up prepared. Um, the second you sh- you 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 show up to a, a rehearsal that you've been hired to sing as the section leader and soloist or just the soloist, and you're tripping and tripping over you know uh, different phrases you know over and over again, and they're having to restart and restart and restart. You're likely not to be asked back. So one of the best ways to market yourself is being prompt on answering your emails back and forth, being prompt on meeting the deadlines for um, the, uh, the contracts when they want them, um, and showing up dependable. And that, that calms them down and they know that they can trust you. If they don't think that they can trust you, you've already, um, you're already ruining your reputation. And how important is it to network? I think... Um, Part of networking, I'm not one of those people personally that runs to the reception hoping to meet, you know, this person and that person, so hopefully I can get work, and I never have been that way. Um, My networking has always been what I presented when I stood on stage. Um, and 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 also, hopefully when they meet me, you know, they don't think of me as a complete jerk. I'm pleasant. I'm collegial. Um, but my personal networking has been, you know, what I have presented on stage and, and trying to make sure that that is the best of who I am. And that sells the product. Them seeing it and hearing it sells the product. Uh, but at the same time, there was a lot of networking, I, I suppose. It came to me, luckily, when I started out. And it was all in that, in that first major ensemble that I was in. There were so many artistic directors that I was able to, to make friendships with them in a casual way, but also have them see what I could do as a singer and, a, and, a, and, a, and an artist. Do you think that it is necessary to have an active social media? Um... It can't hurt. I don't think that it uh, does a ton for those in uh, in the world of, of concert music um, and professional choral music. Uh, it, it hasn't made much of a difference in my in my career for for what I wanted. Um, it's always nice. I feel like. If you're an ensemble singer, it's more the responsibility of the ensemble to make sure that they're taking care of their social media. Um, but it never hurts to have a fan base. So if you are an Instagrammer and you're in Copenhagen with this wonderful group, you find that posting those things inspires other people and you gain a following. Again, 
through that following or through that solo of yours that was posted, someone may see that. So I think it is to your benefit. Is I, it important to have a website? I, <laughs> okay, I'm going to say yes. But at this time in my life, I still don't have one. <laughs> but I would, they're so easy to do and to come by. And if you, um, if you do have one, you, want it, you can do them so well these days. You can build them yourself. Um, you, again, want to make sure that you have someone taking a look at it. You want someone listening to those sound bites. Because that, that uh, website might be someone's first impression of you. Um, it may not be them seeing you on stage. It may be that website. And I can't tell you how many times, and this is my mistake, and it's all my fault. Um, I haven't suffered because of it. But there, there could have been more opportunities. I've met people on planes. Um, you know, you talk to them about what you're doing. Uh, because if, if, you, if you take the music out and start looking through it, people want to know why. Mm -hmm. It starts a conversation. I don't take music out anymore. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I've started conversations with very large business owners um, who work around the world who, you know, wanted to know, well, can I get in touch with you? We have huge events where we need singers and blah, 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 blah. And I have to admit, I probably missed out on some big, big experiences because I either couldn't find my business card, I didn't have it accessible, um, and I couldn't point them to a website. I could say, this is my name and there's some YouTube stuff, but it makes you seem a lot more official, official and professional um, and a person of note if you do have a website. Is being a musician financially difficult? Certainly in the beginning. Um, and because so much of this works by word of mouth, you may find that there's not a ton of contracts coming in that first year. Though it is really important to have something that you do that, make, that, that, that uh, is kind of your bread and butter. Um, the, the friends of mine who do work, um, who do office work, um, they were lucky enough to find positions that would release them, you know, for a week, sometimes once a month, to actually go and sing, and they could work remotely during those times when you're not rehearsing. Um, I think it's really important, especially in the beginning, to, to have um, uh, another field, even if it's arts administration, would definitely suggest taking courses in some arts admin stuff. Um, you could work for an art, art admin um, uh, institution, and they're also more likely to let you spread your wings and continue building your solo career um, by releasing you when you've gotten opportunities. So in the beginning, definitely important to, to have something. How beneficial is it to have an accountant that is adept at working with musicians in terms of taxes? Hugely important. I did not learn until eight years in all the tax cuts that I had coming to me. I did not know truly until then that holding on to receipts was really important. <laughs> you know, so many food, things that you do during your trip towards the, the, the actual uh, contract that you're going to can be written off. Um, and you need a professional in your life until you learn yourself. There's a, there's a number of my friends who've just learned the ins and outs of it who can do that. I can't. I don't want to. 
Um, but you absolutely can learn these things on your own. And part of that is, is just, you know, penciling in a business course uh, while you're an undergraduate and, and digging deep and learning a lot more about finances that way yourself. However, if you are able, it is really good to have someone to, to, to hand those taxes to, hand those receipts to, and they can take care of it for you. So moving on to the last category, which is personal questions. What is a normal day like for a member of Seraphic Fire? Well, we're called in, if it's a week-long contract in Seraphic Fire and it's not a tour, we fly in um, either the day before, depending on our schedules. They do that. They're very flexible. They do it individually. And we're called for an evening rehearsal of some sort, an evening read-through, um, maybe from 7 to 9.30 or 6 to 8.30 on the first day. And... Um, the following day is generally six hours of rehearsal with a two-hour uh, dinner break. And that happens Monday, Tuesday, um, and by Wednesday is a dress rehearsal and a concert. So um, Sunday through Monday, Tuesday are six, uh, generally six-hour days with the two-hour two dinner break, and then Wednesday is a concert day. Um, and after that... If you're not a part of um, Seraphic Fire's educational program where the four people um, go around to different schools in the area during the day to, to, um, to teach students, you have a call um, depending on where we're going. Sometimes we have to drive about an hour and a half to get to one of our venues. But if it's in Miami, you'll be called in for a sound check around 530. Um, so you'll have that full day um, to do work remotely if you have it. Um, to, to explore the town, to study your music if you need to. Um, so from 5, 5.30 call, 6 o'clock, 6.30 dressing room time, 7.30 concert. And our concerts are generally over down there unless it's a big work. They're over in about an hour with no intermission. So you're finished around 8.30, 8.45. And how many seasons have you been with Seraphic Fire? I think this is number 11. And what's that and it like? It could be 12. It's gratifying. Um, it's uh, it's surreal because I don't know where the time went. Um, I am hugely grateful because I've met friends that I'll have for the rest of my life um, in this group. Um, it's just it's it's not just about the music. One of the things that makes singing together easier and and more exciting is when you know people so well around you it's very intimate um but more than anything it's daunting because when i was an undergraduate what i'm doing right now and what we've been doing didn't exist it just wasn't an option so i'm hugely grateful it has led to so many great opportunities um Patrick being one of those conductors that if he's happy with your work and he's guest conducting it with the San Francisco Symphony or New Jersey Symphony or Charlotte Symphony or whomever else, I mean, the list goes on now because his career has just taken off because of this mm -hmm. as well. He will carry his singers with him. So, yeah, a lot of emotions, a lot of happiness. Where do you see yourself after Seraphic Fire? Well, that's an interesting story because I am at a place in my life where I'm wanting and I'm creating change. So I just took a position at a boarding school as a, a choral director uh, that starts basically next Monday. Um, so I will be doing that full time. I've had to 
pull back on I had a full season already lined up and I've had to to pull back on all of those things so where I would normally sing with Seraphic Fire eight to seven to eight times a year um, this year I'm doing it twice in the spring so my life is already changing so I see myself at Choate Rosemary Hall in Wallingford, Connecticut <laughs> north of Yale um, hopefully for quite a long time um, and, to, and, and I'll, I should be able to do at least two contracts with Seraphic Fire um, but ultimately doing these types of programs and meeting guys like you and um, which is what I call the new generation we're just opening up the doors. I am opening up the doors for you because there are just other things that I'd like to do with my life after 12 years, 13 years. But I'll continue to be a soloist in different places. So last question. What are some things you wish you knew while you were going through the process of becoming a professional musician? All these questions that you asked today, we, did, we had no resources. Um, the teachers then, and a lot of teachers now, but and this is 1998, um, and I already knew that I, I mean, I loved choral music, and I, uh, and I loved the idea of being a recitalist because I could connect with my audience, and I, I was talking to my teacher about that, and he says, well, Charles, you know, um, that sounds great, but you can't do that without first being an opera singer. And I thought, well... I'm not going to make it a problem, but I'm not doing that. So I'm going to continue on my path. Um, there were absolutely no resources. So I wish there was someone to talk about finances with uh, to awaken me to, to, well, like an accountant, someone who could explain, um, based on what I do for a living, these are the benefits to it. Uh, and these are these are the things that that aren't such a benefit. We did not have that. Um, we didn't have this dual pedagogical approach to singing either. You know, mm-hmm. you were a soloist, and that was it. Um, no one. You couldn't discuss how a relationship would work with traveling all the time. Um, almost everything that you asked, there it, there was there were no resources. Resources. Mm-hmm. This is still rel- relatively in its infancy in, 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 in this country and in the world. Um, so any and everything that, uh, that you've asked were the questions that I needed answered uh, back then. All right. Well, uh, thank you for being here with us today, Charles Wesley Evans.